0: you tuned in to the Policy Talks podcast by Bharti Institute of Public Policy from the Indian School of Business. We hope to understand the personalities behind policies and demystify the complex policy-making labyrinth. Every Tuesday, we speak to seasoned stalwarts and promising young legislative fellows who have made indelible marks in shaping the Indian policy landscape. a warm welcome to the Public Policy Talks. And we have with us the very eminent Dr. K.P. Krishnan. Welcome, sir.
1: Thanks, Arushi, looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yes, same here. So, uh, you know, with the rich experience and the expertise that you bring in uh, to the public policy space, not just as a practitioner, but an academician. So what we call as pracademic in the true sense, Uh, Please can you share with us how public policy landscape in India has changed over the last four decades?
1: The first change that I want to highlight is the much greater market orientation of the Indian economy. If we go to the sort of the classic public policy paradigm, essentially public policy in the sphere of economics is about the need and the modes of state intervention to correct market failures. Right. In pure economic terms, public policy can actually be summarized in these two sentences. When does the state intervene in markets? And having decided to intervene, how does the state intervene? And I repeat, I am confining myself to the economic role of the state. And in that sphere, In the last say two decades or so, there is a sea change in the state market continuum in India. Pre-91, the state was a dominant player in the economy, allocating resources, allocating finance. Whereas post-91, the state is increasingly stepping away from its direct intervention, allowing markets to function, and the state is intervening much more as a regulatory player. And I think that's the most significant change that uh, I notice.
0: Yeah, I think all of us have witnessed that, that grand change that has been there. You know, when we talk about public policy, the relationship between the bureaucracy and the politician is something that's that's very very imperative and important. You know, the political will is required for policy reform. It's required for even effective policy implementation. And you have been at strategic positions in the state as well as in the central government. You've seen glimpses of varied uh, you know ways in which, which this relationship works or it doesn't work at times. Bureaucrats have their expertise, but politicians have, you know, they know very well the pulse of the people. Can you please share with us uh, and our audience a few challenges on how bureaucracy can ensure, you know, this relationship works more effectively and uh, could be more fruitful?
1: Let me answer this partly with an episode. This is not an episode that I was a part of. But this is an episode I know about because one of the players in the episode was my former boss, Dr. Bimal Jalan. And it's an episode he has narrated to me himself. So it's as authentic as it can get. We are talking about the late 90s. You know, it's the Southeast Asian crisis, thereabouts. Not exactly that time, around that time. If you recall, foreign exchange markets were in... Uh, you know, great bouts of volatility then. Somewhat similar to what we are witnessing now, exchange rates are fluctuating and creating a lot of uncertainty. Dr. Bimal Jalan was the governor of the Reserve Bank of India. And I'm sure you know, under the legal framework, uh, which is called the FEMA, Foreign Exchange Management Act, it's the Reserve Bank of India, which has responsibility for administering the exchange rate. Right. So exchange rate volatility was already affecting and and seriously affecting the economy. So Dr. Jalan came down to Delhi and had a meeting with then Prime Minister, Stratul Bihari Vajpayee, and suggested that we need to do ABCD. You know, these are the steps that we need to take, sir, because we are in deep trouble. And we would need to do something to make sure that, you know, we take these steps to curb volatility and uh, sort of redirect the, the direction of the rupee, current, current direction of the rupee. The Prime Minister agreed and said, uh, but you know, my cabinet consists of people, and he named them, for instance, Mr. El Adwani, Dr. Murli Manohar Joshi, Madam Sushma Swaraj, who all believe in a particular currency policy and and typically that currency policy uh, you know which is normally favored by a lot of people who favor trade is a weak currency policy keep the rupee weak because exports then increase and you know things happen so if you don't mind can you please meet them persuade them because they will oppose the measures that you are suggesting. Right. So it may be a good idea to get their support because if they oppose it, it's difficult for me because it's a collective decision of the cabinet. Dr. Jalan said, I think, sir, it's not a good idea for the Reserve Bank of India Governor to meet individual ministers. Instead, please call a meeting of the Cabinet Committee of Economic Affairs. I'll come and do a presentation and let's take a Call at the end of that presentation. The PM agreed. And the PM said, "Uh, Think, write the presentation and why don't we discuss it before you come and present it in the cabinet committee? Dr. Jalan told me, I was wondering, you know, I am the expert, I know this business. Who knows exchange rates better than the governor of RBI? And the prime minister, who himself used to say, I am I I am a poet. I am a politician. I am primarily a poet. These business things don't uh, you know make too much sense to me. But that man is saying, please bring the presentation and show it to me. So anyway, Dr. Jalan decided. He made the presentation, went to him. And Mr. Vajpayee suggested two, three major changes. And Dr. Jalan said I was a little surprised. Uh, but anyway, he is the boss. He said yes, and they came. The presentation started, and Dr. Jalan was doing the presentation. And as he presented, the presentation was exactly what Mr. Vajpayee had corrected. Mr. Adwani and Mr. Murli Joshi and Sushma Swaraj said, Dr. Jalan, and they were looking at the presentation, aap kya kah rahe? What are you saying? Dr. So Jalan said, This is exactly what I am saying. They said, Are you saying? Our currency is weaker than that of Pakistan? Dr. Jalan said, Yes sir, this is the way it's going. He said, it's completely unacceptable. How can it be that we are weaker than Pakistan? And you need to do something. And Mr. Vajpayee, who was still then silent, suddenly becomes active, looks at Jalan, you know, sort of looks at him angrily and says, You don't understand the sentiment of this government. You need to do something. You've understood what the cabinet is saying. You need to do things to strengthen the currency. And Dr. Jalan said, Okay, sir. They parted. The meeting got over. And here is the real story. As he was leaving, Dr. Jalan was called back by Mr. Vajpayee. The others left the room. He said, He sat down. He gave him a cup of tea. He said, Jalan Saab, are you now following what I did? Jalan said, no sir, I didn't. He said, rupee and dollar level may be an economic question for you, but it's a serious political question for the Indian parliament. We need to carry the Indian parliament and the people who would have opposed the strengthening of the rupee are the people who today directed you to strengthen the rupee. Did you see what I did? I added one slide in your presentation on comparing it to Pakistan. <laughs> that is not an economic question. That is politics. So he summarized, he said, You are artshastri. arthashastri do Rajneeti <laughs> so, it's a long story. But the purpose is, Indian politicians are very wise people. They have to carry the people. So, the best economic policy is doable only when the people allow you to do it. And hence, I think we need to understand this symbiotic relationship between politics, Governance and civil service civil service can have expertise But political judgments can be only made by politicians. And I think that's the essence of the relationship
0: Wow, thank you for sharing such an interesting uh, story. I'll move ahead and uh, You know talk about a topic that's a uh, very close to my heart This is about ethics in public policy, which is an important concern today as a senior and ex uh, you know, as an exemplary bureaucrat. Please can you suggest on how should civil servants conduct themselves?
1: The times that sort of we joined the civil service and the times before that, civil service was not a very, you know, in comparison to sort of private sector jobs, it is not a very well-paid occupation. You know, the kind of salaries that we got, if I mention those numbers, some of the audience will laugh pitiable numbers. All of that changed in the three, you know, the pay commissions, three pay commissions before the current one.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think current civil service salaries are far, far better in comparative terms, in terms of purchasing power terms, even keeping in mind current price levels than what they used to be 25 years ago. Having said that, Civil service has never attracted people for reasons of money and remuneration. By definition, public service has to have a certain approach, a certain bent of mind, yeah. which is not exactly the equivalent of you know, adding crores to your bank balance. Right. Public service offers a certain satisfaction and a certain, you know, more purpose-filled life, that is not easily measurable in money. So, we need to have a mechanism mm-hmm. to psychologically assess people during the time of entry. People should get into the civil service for the right reasons. So, we need to ensure that people are well counseled and the right kind of people opt for these jobs. But we also need to keep in mind, unlike our times and the times before that, these are not now occupations for life. My times, most people joined and spent an entire life in the civil service. Today, it's quite conceivable a person may like to leave after 15 20 years, wants to pursue academics, or not-for-profit, or for-profit opportunities. With all that, I think selections need to be better, more value-driven, plus we need to go back to age at entry. One of the biggest advantages of the old civil service was, by and large, a lot of us were actually in our first jobs. And it's important to mold people. At 21, when you are fresh from college, it's easy to mold not only your knowledge, but your value systems. So, this entire ethics, the entire esprit de corps of the civil service, where honor, public service, count for far more than bank balance, has to be part of your DNA. You can't suddenly acquire at 45. My sort of macro solution to this problem is on the lines that I described above. And the other micro solutions are, we need to step up on all of the other standard mechanisms of enforcement of governance. We need to be very tough about not condoning indiscipline. If you are an elite service, even minor indiscretions, have to be visited with serious consequences. You can't be a leader in society and claim that it's a Leader, Leader You are the leader that you won't choti si wrong galti, galti, si galti hui the consequences have to be severe. So a combination of factors, but in my opinion, the most important is the selection process, the right kind of people.
0: Right, right. Uh, you've emphasized rightly on the selection, but if we can go ahead and talk about people in the civil service right now, and if I uh, you know take your attention to the training side of it because you have been involved with civil service training at ISB, you teach the public policy cohort at Labasna, you teach uh, you know the civil servants, what do you think uh, you know is the role that training public policy training can play? for senior officers to ensure this good governance that we've been talking about?
1: The landscape in which governments are operating today is a very fast changing landscape. For instance, extensive use of technology for public service delivery is not something my generation of civil servants is very familiar with because it wasn't uh, possible to use technology to do such extensive public service delivery. Now, civil servants, therefore, have to be constantly updated, re-equipped. Newer challenges, for instance, how do you deal with other people's data, is a serious challenge. How does one deal with the post-pandemic medium and small and micro enterprises is a serious public policy challenge today. So the challenges are constantly evolving. The same issue has different dimensions. So the policy that we have, which is a training across life and typically, you know, almost every five, seven years, you go back to the civil service school For the equivalent of a re equipping, uh, a mid career uh, updating training. I think that's an excellent idea. We need to constantly redesign these programs because the content of these programs will also have to change given the changes that are otherwise happening in society. Equally, I think the value based, uh, you know, the ethics uh, part that we spoke about in the previous question. I think needs to be constantly re-emphasized because typically in all these organized, you know, elite groups take commandos, take the Indian Air Force, take Submariners. The general feedback of literature on this is the peer group learning and the peer group exchange of value systems is far more important than anything else so very often i should be far more worried about what does my peer group think of me my civil service cohort needs to think well of me it's something i value normally in these closed systems you know these systems tend to be closed partly because they occupy positions where the external world can gain a lot by influencing them. So, we used to have a phrase in the Indian judiciary, uh, in the judiciary generally, why Indian, called judicial aloofness. A judge would ordinarily not socialize. And the logic is very clear. The judge could very well be presiding over a dispute between you and me tomorrow morning. So, ordinarily the judge will not be socializing with you and me. It does not mean a judge is antisocial, a judge is a human. So, the judge should not get influenced by normal human considerations. And the best way to do this is keep away from temptations. So, the peer group bonding, peer group value system, peer group social pressure to be clean and honest is something we need to re-emphasize in all these training programs. So I think in addition to content of new public policy challenges, new technology, new techniques of public policy, I think we should have at least 20-30 percent of time where it is serious peer group exchange, structured and unstructured, to drive home the values that we believe are important.
0: so much this was really I think this is the need of the hour and uh, if the young civil servants listening to us and our conversation today can just take away a few points you know from your expertise and experience I think that would be uh, the success of the show that we are hosting Uh, I'm sure our audience loved to hear you today thank you so much for being a part of the public policy talks and on behalf of the Indian School of Business thanks for being here with us today
1: Thanks, Arushi. Very much enjoyed this conversation. Bye-bye.